This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is Stefan Silverman, founder of the fabric brand Castel and the president of the Decorative Furnishings Association. The last time Stefan was on the podcast, he delivered a masterclass on why fabric costs what it does. This time around, he gives us a breakdown of the trade industry as it is today, ranging from rising competition from retail brands to the endless complications of doing business online. I spoke with Stefan about why inflation might have some surprising positive effects in fabric, whether interior designers are technically retail businesses, and why he thinks now is finally the time for the industry to come together and embrace transparent pricing. This podcast is sponsored by High Point Market. If you go to High Point Market a lot, and I certainly do, you hear one thing over and over. It's about much more than just seeing new product. High Point is where you make the connections that will take your business to the next level. And it's no wonder. High Point is where all the leaders in the home industry meet twice each year. Come for the products, come back for the people. This spring, market is April 2nd through the 6th. Get your pass today at highpointmarket.org. This podcast is also sponsored by Modern Matter, the producer of statement-making decorative and kitchen hardware. Handcrafted using solid brass and hand-polished gemstones, Modern Matter has over 500 knobs, pulls, and backplates in stock and ready to be delivered to your doorstep within 24 to 72 hours. Browse exclusive collections developed in partnership with leading designers like Michelle Nussbaumer, Eddie Ross, Barry Benson, and Sarah Bartholomew. In mixing and matching metal finishes with semi-precious gemstones and other luxury materials. Visit modern-matter.com to see how the company is redefining hardware. That's modern-matter.com. And now, on with the show. One of the things that happened recently that I knew you would have opinions about was this announcement from Fabricut, was this announcement from your old friend, David Finer, and talking about, we've decided collectively we're going to take Fabricut and our many other brands off of some of these platforms that sell directly to consumers in an effort to further support the interior designer. And I wonder what you made of that when you, when you heard that news. I understand it. I don't know. Again, I'm not in the Fabricut sort of uh, range of companies. They're much bigger. They have a much broader base. They sell to a different type of interior designer than the ones I necessarily am familiar with. Mm. But there are a couple of things there. So, you know, whether they left money on the table and they had a business and and they were going through these marketplaces and, and those marketplaces were selling to end users, I don't know specifically, but I imagine that the amount of business that they were doing, even though it may seem significant compared to some relative to, to their total business, it probably wasn't a large percentage. If truly their interior designers were upset with them, and I'm guessing David had 
the bold courage to sort of make that call and say, well, I'm, I'm assessing this and I think that it's hurting us more than we're benefiting on the financial side. Well, then I think it was a pretty courageous move. I personally and, and maintain that cut length fabric is not really intended for the end user. I think you always need to have a maker or specifier in between, someone to choose it, to select the right kind of fabric, and then it has to go to an upholsterer or a, fabric or a fabricator mm -hmm. to be finished. So we are a semi-finished good, if you will. But so is there a real market for end users in fabric? Mm, I, I don't think so. Certainly not at the what I would call the D&D &D level. Okay, so that's where I said fabric cuts a little different. Okay. But I will challenge one piece. I'm not sure that the loyalty part that I think David was hoping for will necessarily happen. I think that that word, uh, yes, we are still in a relationship-based kind of industry, but I think loyalty is based on ease of transaction and opportunity. I think the world is that way. I think our business is no different. So I'm not sure the, the I'm not sure there's going to be more loyalty tomorrow than than there has been already. People like their product; they can get their product easily. Right. It's in stock; they can get samples. They're happy with it. That's the loyalty. Well, it it certainly seemed as if many designers that we saw responded very positively to this. They they did suggest that they felt supported and that and that they were pleased that this was happening. I know you mentioned sort of D&D &D level brands and does it make sense for them? I, I know Kravit sells online and Schumacher and, and, and in fairness, I think a lot of people looked as though they were experimenting with Paragold, the division of Wayfair that sells all these to the trade brands. I don't know what companies are thriving on that platform to your point. I can't imagine people are showing up on the daily to buy 20, 30 yards at a time on Paragold. So, right? Fabrics by the yard, interior design fabrics by the yard require, like I said, not just the makers and specifiers, but really a lot of service that goes along with it. And this is something that I, I'm constantly bringing up. Um, you know, whether it's cutting for approval, CFAs, whether it's reserves, whether it's being able to back order some products, whether it's free sampling, all these components are built in to the service that we provide interior designers to enable them to put their projects and make their projects successful. Selling them to an end user who may not be getting a CFA or who may not be getting the reserve capacity or may not be getting the free sample. I'm stuck and I will ask anyone out there to please explain to me because after all these years, I'm still stuck on this. If we're selling retail at a higher price than we're selling trade net pricing, but we're not offering those services, there is a disconnect in my mind mm. and I can't get over it. I'm still stuck and I would love for someone to explain it to me uh, because I maintain that trade is not wholesale. Trade is trade. And if you look at it that way, is an interior designer really a retailer or not? And then you look at these websites, they are retailers. Right. 
right? So there are lots of cross-channel pieces here that I think are fuzzy, are mixed and difficult to identify. And I think that this is part of our Achilles heel of trade. When you look at the retail giants coming in and catering to the trade customer, to the interior designer, they're clear. There's a lot of clarity. Everybody knows what price is what, where the markups are, and for what reason. When it comes to trade, going and selling on whether it be aggregator sites, websites, retailer sites, then you've got these layered markups that put us in an uncompetitive space. And I think it's unclear. Right. Does that make sense? It does. And and I'm and I want to get more in And I'm not clear because no. it's not clear. No, no. <laughs> and I think as you and I have talked about in the past, I think that there was always this sort of siren call to somehow figure out how to cater to consumers for these higher end fabric brands. And I think to me, in a way, this fabric cut announcement is a strong suggestion that it is not as easy as you would imagine and clearly must not have been worthwhile for them. Whatever revenue they were getting internally, they must have had discussions. And they mentioned the fact that when they acquired Clarence House, they made it very clear that Clarence House was going to be treated very differently than the Fabricut brands and wasn't going to be available. But the other other challenge for Fabricut, and I want to talk about this a little bit with you, because I, I, in a way, I want you to explain to our listeners some of the some of the challenges that a great big brand like Fabricut has. And David Feiner spoke about this in the in the interview that he did with Fred around this announcement. Was David Feiner doesn't have control over all of the SKUs that are in Fabricut's vast collection, mm-hmm. and that he suggested that in fact, as much as sixty percent of them were actually in the hands of converters who could themselves put the product up online and and in a way sell sell against them if they if they chose to, and that was part of why he was trying to just sort of take this off altogether. Explain for listeners this whole converter and jobber structure a little bit just so that people can understand. So I'm going to start off by saying I'm not an expert, although I have (laughs) some experience. And I I did work for a converter. I worked for P. Kaufman, who I will tell you is, as far as I'm concerned, the best and the most uh, above board converter they are just a wonderful company, a wonderful group of people that run the company and work for the company. So converters, in a very simple way, what they do is they design product, they stock the product, and they sell not by the yard, but generally by the piece. And they enable distributors or jobbers, such as ourselves, whether it's myself or whether it be Clarence House or Fabricut, to buy by the piece. Mm-hmm rather than build entire productions minimums, right? It gives them some flexibility. But generally, those those SKUs, those fabric designs are not exclusive. Right. Okay? That's kind of, you're sort of uh, gaining the flexibility of not building big inventories, but then you're not getting an exclusive design confined to a territory, Right. And I guess what happens is some of these converters sort of said, I guess that their thinking was, well, if we don't offer exclusivity, may as well, we can sell it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of 
taking a bold move. I mean, I will say that there are some, I won't name them, but there are some European converters that um, will do the same and come into the market and they'll sell to an interior designer, maybe not by the yard, but but everyone's trying to find some business. And so so if someone, they, they are offering cut length programs now, which, what does that mean? That, that means that you don't have to buy the full piece. You can buy it by, by the yard off of their inventory, which they have anyway. Right. And it was an opportunity to, um, to build more business. I think that some of these big converters sort of saw an opportunity and said, well, listen, there's something called the internet and we can just put all our SKUs up on there and see what happens and see if people buy it. And sure, I guess the converters that, that uh, Fabricut worked with assessed and said, well, we're willing to take the risk. Mm. My understanding is Fabricut stopped buying from them uh, altogether, which I'm certainly sure that those converters are not pleased with and i don't know if they've retracted right. uh, but it's out there yeah already yeah but and and th and that's one of the challenges is that many of these companies particularly a lot of the large companies in order to fill out their lines have a lot of things that they don't have the exclusive on unlike with clarence house where those are their creations Correct. they exclusively own them and, and so it becomes even more challenging and it's another reason why this whole selling online process just seems wildly complicated for our industry and if you also are a company that sells wallpaper and you've recently become a company that sells wallpaper mm -hmm. it can also be challenging to to control right sure sure and and you know that's where i think as a whole we we have to constantly pay attention to the market and things are changing things have changed drastically at every level whether it be the converter to jobber relationship or the the the, the jobber or distributor whatever brand to interior designer and now the retail coming in, I mean, the environments, the, the field is different than it was. And so trying to do things the way one used to do them is perhaps comfortable, but it's also possibly outdated. And I think when we all have to adapt and we have to accept change and we have to work with change and there's still plenty of opportunities, people still decorate their homes and they will continue to do so. You just have to change the way we do it to make it viable. With your wallpaper collection, is that something that you have exclusively in the U.S. or do you have regions or, I mean, how is it? You've been talking to Fred. Well, um, so. no, no. A, <laughs> no, a of, of course I've been talking question. to Fred, yeah. but also, I, I mean, we've been talking to several companies recently right. that have been challenged by a lot of these online sites right. that they have to monitor constantly right. to make sure that they're not undercutting or they're not putting product online right. that's not supposed to be online. And that's why I ask. Well, I, and I'll answer you. So I'll give you a little anecdote to answer. So I do have a lovely, lovely brand that I'm distributing. It's called Cordonet. It's out of Spain. Beautiful. They are doing very well. And they have also put their products or sold their products through aggregator sites in the UK or in Canada. So not even in the US, mm. they're international sites. And the internet is a vast place and people find them. They, they land on these things. Now, uh, at one point, you know, I built up my pricing to distribute some of it in the US and building up that price are all the services that come along with building a net price. 
in other words, free sampling and the ability to speak to a customer service person and to work on custom sizing your murals, all sorts of really white glove services. These aggregator sites don't have those services. Right. Okay. They have digital images of everything. So they have vast portfolios of product. Mm. I'm sure they have customer service teams, but they don't have this white glove customer service team. When we discovered that some of these international sites had some of the same products we had and anybody could buy from them and they would ship to the US, I had to ask the the wallpaper company to ensure that there was an MAP, a a minimum advertised price. So we aligned that and that worked out. So we had the same price, public price, retail, as net Mm. here. And we had some interior designers that were very concerned saying, well, I don't get it. Anybody could go buy it at the same price that I'm buying up. Where's my markup? And I said, well, maybe you shouldn't work off of a markup. Perhaps you should work as a fee, as get a procurement fee, get a design fee, whatever fee you want, but the price is the price. And they said, well, I, I, I'm, I'm upset by that. And I said, well, I'm sorry. That's the way it is. You'll get great service with us. You can go to them, do what you want. And here's the anecdote. We had a few, not too many cases where those interior designers went and bought it on those sites. And in one case just recently, they made a mistake. And then they came to us and asked us to fix it. And I said, well, kind of, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) I I can't fix that for you. Had you come to us originally, part of the service that you would have received is we would have fixed it. That's where the value lies. The net price, the designer price is built in with a lot of service value. It's not the material itself. And I think in a long time, uh, two years, three years ago, we did a podcast and we sort of did the dichotomy of a fabric price. I would say close to 40% of our prices are based on a service component. And so the interior designer finally said, well, okay, well, I have to reorder it. I'll reorder it through you. And I said, okay, fine. So you'll order it for us and we'll help you through it and we'll make sure you don't make a mistake. And we did. So again, if that, get, that anecdote sort of gives a, a picture of a little bit of how the challenges that exist when you buy something off the shelf yes. versus you buy it through a d- designer channel, those are the values. Yeah. Interestingly, we were talking to a company yesterday that specializes in part on selling to a lot of small design shops in in suburban markets. And I do think that is a way to perhaps better handle this consumer customer uh, where they can sort of shop at some place they might know locally and and they are their fabric books and and wallpaper books and that and that certainly makes sense and um, and that seems I think like, that that makes a lot of sense right. I mean I think that that you know that that is a way to sell to someone who is truly a retailer not just a specifier right okay so someone who has built a brick and mortar in space someone who builds inventory or or invests in the sampling or in the space and then resells it that's what i see as wholesale retail that relationship is really a wholesale to retail relationship right unlike the, the structure in the to the trade fabric business which is you know Look, I really have to preface it by saying this. Number one, I want interior designers to make a lot of money. 
Okay. Because the more successful they are, the more of an industry or a trade that that becomes, the more customers I will have, the more people's homes will be decorated and the better everyone will be for it. But I think things have changed where I think many interior designers consider themselves the retailer. And I don't see that. I see them as specifiers. Now you have a specifier and a purchaser. A specifier is the architect designer who, who puts the project together and is paid a design fee for doing it. And then you've got the purchaser who actually does the purchasing. Now, I understand in the residential space that the specifier and purchaser can be the same people, and that's fine. But I see the, in, the interior designer of today really being mainly, if we had to sort of put a label on it, a specifier. They're not buying inventory they don't have a brick and mortar location and they're not advertising and, and doing promotions the way a traditional retailer would. And by the way, this whole story of pricing, it keeps on coming up and it's come up for 30 years. And I think it keeps on coming up because it hasn't passed what I'd call the sniff test. There's still something awry that is just confusing people. And, and because it's confusing with, I think with it trade pricing, it, you mean, or with, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. In general, like the whole, the whole, the whole way it's set up. It's, it, it's, I think people are still, it's opaque. It's not clear. There's no clarity in it. Right. And we talk about transparency. We talk about there are all these words that come out, but I think ultimately the net price is the highest serviced white glove price a product can be. Now, I think interior design is not just about picking paint chips and colors and putting a room together. It's a very complex business. And I really respect what interior designers do. And there's also the part of the procurement that an interior designer does, which is the, the what you want to call it, production, the, the ordering, making sure it's shipping, tracking it, making sure it gets delivered to the right place. And there's a value to that. And interior designers should be paid for that value. But I'm not sure it's a component of the price of a product. For transactional purposes, if it's just easier to say, oh, listen, I, I charge 20% for that, that's fine. Right. That, that's how that designer wants to work. And that should be separate from the creative design fee of a project. You see, there should be sort of, if I were to paint the perfect world here, I would say net price is the price. It's the price to interior designers. We only want to sell to interior designers. We don't want to sell to the public, but there is a price. Everybody knows it. And that is a fundamental thing that I believe that has changed in today's times is everyone wants to know how much things cost. Wealthy people want to know how much things cost. They'll pay it, but they just want to know how much it costs. So having this idea of not telling people how much things cost, I think is weakening our position. Well, and, and, and help me understand when you when you say that you think that that some designers are thinking themselves as retailers. That's where I'm fuzzy. Help me better understand. Well, what I'm fuzzy too. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. just as fuzzy as you are. Okay. Um, because you, you will speak to some, and again, every interior designer works differently. You take 10 interior designers and eight of them will work differently. Right. Okay. And some of them will do a markup only someone will do a cost plus some of them will do a fixed fee some will do a design fee and that's fine they could do whatever they want that's the relationship that they have with the end client and we get some designers say to us well is your price retail or is your price net and i said well we don't sell retail so why would we have a retail price and that's where there's this sort of like fuzziness so net 
is the price. There's one price and that's the price at which we sell it. It's a highly serviced price. Some interior designers will say, well, you know, I'm a retailer, so I need to mark up. Okay. Because that's, I'm selling to the end consumer and the end consumer is buying from me. And so I'm a retailer. Imagine if it were just there and we were very clear. We say, we don't sell retail. That price is not a price for the end consumer. That's a price for interior designers only. And we only sell to you and there's the price. And that's a, the price at which interior designers buy it, period. The interior designer then can say, listen, I charge 20% on that price for the production, okay? To get it, make sure it gets to the right place at the right time in the right quantity. And then the designer can say, I will then charge you another kind of fee or, or, or a fixed fee or a percentage. It doesn't matter what they do for their design process and, and for the execution of their, their, their know-how. And then it simplifies things. I really do think it simplifies things. And if you look at the whole big retail group coming in and catering to the interior designer, everybody knows what the price is. Everybody knows what this retail price was. Everybody knows what the retail minus the designer uh, discount is. And it's clear. And I think that that's where big retail companies such as RH or R House or Williams-Sonoma have an advantage. They'll, they'll have other problems, I think, with it too, because I don't know if they have the margins to give these discounts all the time. Right. But it's clear. It's clear. And that's what I'm trying to imagine as a great world for our trade is that we become more clear about how we work together. We're taking a quick break from the show to hear more about Modern Matter. Modern Matter creates heirloom quality cabinet and furniture hardware. Their trade program was developed in partnership with leading interior designers and is focused on helping you make your next project outstanding and successful. With trade-only pricing, a convenient sampling program, and custom manufacturing for large orders. Check out their Instagram handle, Modern Matter Hardware, or visit modern-matter.com to open a trade account and receive $100 off your first order of $500 or more by using the code TRADE100. That's modern-matter.com. And now, back to the show. Coming out of these these challenging couple of years that we've been in, it seems, at least at the moment, interior designers are thriving. Never been busier. Fabric showrooms, whether people are showing up in person or not, whatever, they all tell me they're doing incredibly well. So a couple of years ago, this threat from the vertically integrated non-trade retailers seemed massive and it was and it was going to crush the industry any minute everybody seems to be doing so well right now is it is it less of a threat is something different coming out of this time is the industry working in a different way are these are these to the trade companies better positioned in your mind is our house and rh are they not the threat they once were or is it just that everyone's so busy they they haven't noticed how how much better some of these companies have gotten <sighs> I think we've all, the, the, the home trade business, whether it be retail, retail to whole, uh, catering to interior designers or just trade, benefited from the fact that everyone was home, okay, for the last couple of years over the pandemic. Sure. So we're all doing well. I think that there's no better time to reevaluate. 
I think that <laughs> to sit there and be like, oh, yay, I have all this extra business. Yay, I'm going to go take a vacation. I think if I were to be a consultant, I would say this is the perfect time to start making change and to, to start gingerly and carefully investing into the change and to the future. I think that this silver lining that we've all somewhat benefited from, I call it the COVID boom. And, and, and for, I, you know, again, don't want to, to be insensitive to all the people that did suffer through it, but in our business, we benefited right. from it. Sure. Okay. But I don't think it's going to last. I'm just going to tell you, I think that people are going to start traveling again. People want to go out and travel and they're going to spend the money on their traveling and they're going to stop spending on their drapery and on their carpets and on their fabrics. And I think that we don't know where a lot of this money that was made uh, for the uber wealthy during the pandemic, whether that will be as flush in the future. So what I would say is be smart, be conservative, take it in, put your money in your coffers, but invest. Invest in where you see the future of our business, whether you be furniture, lighting, or fabric, wallpaper, doesn't matter. You know your segment, you know your business, pay attention and start investing in the future. I'll tell you, I have. Uh, I hired someone to develop my digital sales in markets where I'm not, or I'm not represented at all, so that I can try to reach a customer to let them know how great of an experience they had they could have with us digitally. So I think that each market, whether it be the big retailers who will continue to thrive and figure out their trade business. And again, when I talk about retailers, I'm not talking about them selling to retail customers. I'm talking about those big retailers selling to interior designers. Right. Whether they continue to thrive and, and, and fine tune their programs for their interior designers or some uh, trade companies invest in the right way, whether it be in technology or in, in different, I don't think it's in product that the investment is necessary. I mean, you always have to invest in product, but I think that there's still a lot of product out there, perhaps too much. Exactly. So, uh, so I, I want to talk about a couple of things that you just mentioned. So, I, mm -hmm. so one, I keep asking companies today, are you feeling the need to maybe dial back on the number of new product introductions or, I mean, we, we spoke to some high point companies before the holidays and so many of them said, listen, honestly, we couldn't come out with new product introductions at the level we once were. And you know what? It was fine. Turns out we went to market and we had fewer stuff to show and people loved it and they could actually walk around and see some things. And, and honestly, it sounded like some of them, now we'll see if that sticks and, and if they continue to, to perhaps not roll out as much product. In the fabric industry, you and I have talked about this on many occasions, there's an awful lot of fabric out there in the world. And I feel like never more so than right now. Do we need all those, those new introductions? Can you scale back on that a little bit and use that money elsewhere? Everybody sees opportunities the way they see opportunities. And I saw this as a wonderful opportunity to reset. Uh, and what do I mean by that? When you look at, you know, and, and, and I'll try to stay in my lane about it. Um, when you build inventory and we purchase products for inventory before prices and the supply chain issues were created because of the pandemic, the price at which we bought it was at a certain price. 
Okay. And we sold and we're like, okay, we sell it pretty well, not bad, pretty okay. And in our business with the to the trade fabrics, servicing that fabric. And what do I mean by that? Being able to reserve fabric with no penalty and let it expire, hold inventory for a month because you're looking at your CFA is a very costly proposition. Okay. So servicing a fabric is expensive. So when you're looking at your sales and you look at what price you purchased it at, you're like, okay, I'll keep it. Now that the prices went up, I think everybody's reevaluated their threshold to what they'll be willing to reorder or not. And I think that's been a lot of discontinuation. And I think that that's good because I think it's fine tuning in everybody's line, the best sellers. And I think, I don't know what other fabric houses are doing, but what I'm doing is I'm saying, okay, I'm just going to really restock my best sellers. I didn't increase price of all the things that I'm keeping as while supplies last. So they were based on older inventory that didn't go up in price for me. And I'm trying to pass that benefit on to my clients saying, these are still good fabrics. We'll still reserve them, service them the same way, mm -hmm. but I didn't increase price. I had to increase the price on my current items that I'm rolling. And now I'm going to be looking for new product to replace those discontinued, but I have to look at new product that is not as expensive as it recently became. So it's, it, there's a lag. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I'm, and I'm curious, yeah. how much do you estimate your prices have gone up? Well, <laughs> I'm a fly in the ointment there. I only increase my prices 5%. And that, okay, this is, okay, you want something juicy for this podcast? <laughs> I will give you something juicy. Please, please. There's the old proverbial dog chasing its tail problem here because the more I increase price, the more commission is paid to my partners and I'm not recouping those actual hard costs. And that, that goes for freight, that goes for the, the raw material. So the more I increase my price, the more portion of that goes to commission, the more I would have to increase my price to actually cover the increase in cost, right? So I was very careful and I opted to only increase my price a certain amount, increase my freight a little bit, and just kind of function a little skinnier, but I worked really hard with my supply side and procurement side not to increase their prices for a certain amount of time so that I could keep the price at a reasonable level. Otherwise, it, it would just spin out of control. Do you think that that's a genie that's out of the bottle and, and we're not going to be able to bring inflation back down? Do you think that these, these prices, these skyrocketing prices that, as you just said, for freight, for everything in your world has, has gone up, do you think that's exaggerated right now as some are starting to believe that maybe the Fed doesn't need to raise rates as aggressively because once the supply chain gets caught up, once people start traveling again, to your point, some of these other costs are going to come down more. What's your sense? Well, first of all, I've never seen a fabric price come down ever. And anybody who deals with freight companies have never seen freight come <laughs> down either. Right. They just don't increase as much. Right. And on the, on the fabric side, what I would say is just exactly what I did say, as I think people will discontinue and replace with more value-driven pricing, okay? But they won't bring down the price of a fabric, right? But that's where inflation will show up, you think, in those strategic decisions to, to cull their lines a little. A yeah, little. and I think it'll eventually 
settle down. Mm -hmm. But I do want to bring up something that I find really interesting. You know, uh, I think for those of you who don't, that who are listening, I live, eat, breathe, and I was born in this, okay? My parents did this 30 years ago. Right. Well, I remember when I had enough consciousness to realize the price of a fabric back then, and I look at the price of a fabric now, we have not increased even close to the CPI. Like if we had grown with the regular rate of inflation over the course of the years for 30 years, most of our fabrics would be $500 a yard. I mean, Four hundred. Right, years, right, right. Whatever. If we had adjusted adequately for inflation. Yeah. I think what's happened is we've all felt that we needed to keep our, our prices reasonable, right? So that we could continue being competitive. Mm -hmm. But I think it's eroded our margins. I really do. And and the cost of sampling's gone up, the cost of raw materials have gone up, the cost of of, of reserving and, and, and putting out new products gone up. But our fabric prices really have not proportionately gone up. So it's a question I can't solve. I just, I'm just trying to stay competitive amongst my, you know, my channel and trying to offer a, it's not a question of inexpensive. It's a question of value of what you're looking at. And, you know, you're looking at a, a polyester, you're looking at a wool, or you're looking at a, a velvet. And, and there's a certain price that, ever, that is accepted and you have to kind of stay within that range. So you've made the decision you've made about how much you're going to raise prices to to reflect this this time that we're in, and and you'll sort yeah. of see where we go. The other thing that you mentioned was as you looked at this time and and you thought, what should I be investing in? You chose to look at a digital investment, a person, a new hire to help you sort of navigate what could. Uh, a small fabric company be doing digitally that would make sense, not with a, an eye towards a consumer customer, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what many people think of when they think of these digital platforms, but, mm -hmm. but how digitally you could better go after a trade customer. What's your thinking there? What are you imagining is there? Is it some of these digital multi-line showrooms that are out there now? Is it? Well, that's, a, that's a, an excellent question. Uh, and that's the question that I'm trying to answer. So that's what this person that I've hired mm. is trying to do. So there's e-commerce. And I'm not sure the trade is well-suited for pure e-commerce as we know it, a la Amazon, mm. okay? Because those are for impulsive purchases by the person who's going to buy it, okay, for themselves, as opposed to our interior designers who are buying it for someone else and who are working on projects. So it's a longer sort of process. And I don't think that the e-commerce component is necessarily the right direction. It's more what I've called or coined as e-service. It means access to information 24-7 so that the interior designer can make a better decision about what they want to specify. So it, to tell a small company, you have to be working on a platform where whether it be your sales partners as multi-line showrooms, whether it be a designer themselves, and that's who our customers are, can find a price easily, see the availability, see the status of a fabric to know whether it's going to be continued or ability to back order it or not, mm -hmm. can request a sample because ultimately they're going to want to touch it somehow and they want a sample in their hand. And any information that they would want in order to fine tune the decision making for their project. That has to happen. That has to happen. You, and no more faxes. I'm, everybody hear me. No more faxes. No more credit card forms. 
This has to be done on platforms digitally, and it can be done to a very specific market, to your very specific customers, to give them a great experience with your company. And it's all about the, the ability to get information quickly and efficiently and accurately. And I would say the same to the multi-line showrooms out there. They need to invest in that omni-channel experience for their customers. A customer comes to them, they should be able to respond in the same way, quickly and accurately provide them with a platform to see price, see stock availability, order a sample. If you can't do that today, I think you're writing yourself a ticket out in the next couple of years. That's my hard line <laughs> perspective. Well, so interestingly, one of the companies that came along, a massive platform that mm -hmm. many thought could be a solution. Material Bank? That's right, Stefan. We're <laughs> going to talk about Material Bank because I'm so... so. And we were talking about Fabricut earlier. They pulled themselves off of Material Bank. I don't know yeah. what they're thinking there going forward. Many of the residential trade companies pulled themselves off or or decided not to go on. You decided it didn't make economic sense for you to go on the platform. I wonder how you're thinking about Material Bank today and what your what your impression is of what's going on there. Okay, I hope Adam's listening. Um, you hope okay, he is listening. So, okay. Well, I, I hope okay. he is. No. Okay. So I think I maintain, and I have maintained all along, that I am awfully intrigued by Material Bank. I think that the vision is is amazing. I think that the platform and the functionalities of the platforms are amazing, and they're even more amazing for our customers. They just don't make financial sense, particularly for fabric, because fabric samples are expensive. And offering this, it becomes very expensive fulfillment for the fabric companies to get all that product out there. It's a tough sell, particularly, and, and you can ask me about this after, when we have territorial contracts where we pay commission no matter where that sample came from on a territory. So that's where, to me, the, the sort of tough swallow is, I still pay my showroom in a territory commission, even if the, the designer got the sample on Material Bank, for which I paid a high premium for the, the that client to get from Material Bank. And did you ever get an answer from Adam about that quandary? No, that, no, no, no. But, okay. but, but, but I mean, that is, a, that is a real issue. I mean. Right. But he has a vision and, and I actually really appreciate it. And if Adam's listening, and I think he's <laughs> probably way ahead of me already saying, yeah, Stefan, I've already, I'm yeah. already on this. And I think this is what he's going to do. I think we're all going to go, all going to reconsider Material Bank in the future. Material Bank is an excellent platform to get samples into clients' hands. It still requires the client to go find the company after to contact them to actually purchase. So when Material Bank, either through their acquisition of that company that they made out of the UK or right. whatever, other company they may acquire to make this happen. Once Material Bank gets into the transactional process of saying to a designer, here, you can get your sample for free, you can get it overnight, and you can come and you can click and purchase through me, then I think it's a different story. And I think that if that's the vision, I think that there's a real marketplace there. And you think that's likely? You think that that's where it's going? And I mean, the reason that the, some of the companies that are on the platform now even the ones that, that think it's too expensive, 
Some of them justify it to themselves by saying, we have this position, we're going to be well-placed when this, when this next thing happens for Material Bank. We're going to be there. And yeah, some people think there's an inevitability to this, to this succeeding in one form or another. I get it. I get it. And I think you have to look at it more granularly where you have to look at what companies are on there. First of all, they're bigger, okay, for the most part, and they can afford to take that chance. And also you have to look at their distribution. Do they have their own showroom or are they paying a commission to another showroom? So if they have their own showroom, I guess they can kind of look at it as a wash and be like, well, it doesn't really matter. It's my own company in that market anyway. But if you're a smaller company and you're in a multi-line showroom and you're paying a commission to that showroom regardless, then it's a different story. So, and ultimately, if you want, uh, this is, I don't know if I'm right, my little fabric (laughs) snow globe. um, I have lint flying in my, in my globe. It's it's a, it's a lint, a lint globe. I think the markets are going to be hybrid. I don't think there's going to be one fit for everyone's solution. I think you're going to see some multi-line showrooms who are strong and have invested in the right way and have a great following that will remain strong and will continue. Mm -hmm. I think that there will be some companies that will open their own showrooms, like a lot of them have recently, whether it be Romo, Elitis, or Frey, or uh, Philip Jeffries, they've all gone to open their own showrooms. Why? They control the narrative, they control their brand, there's a lot of value there, and they can afford to, right? right? I think many more small companies would if they could. And then I think there'll be digital, and there'll be digital marketplaces, and there'll be digital, uh, I'd say direct right? Where you're driving people to your website and giving the experience to those clients directly. Uh, Again, what do I know? But I don't see the future as being just a one size fits all. I think it's going to be a mix. And and that showrooms and design centers will continue to have a place in that omni-channel mix, the ones that that do it well. Yeah. I, I, I mean, again, I really believe in the showroom bit as an experiential place. I mean, and and so by the way, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, you can edit this out, whatever, but uh, <laughs> next next week or two weeks from now, Warren Schulberg's gonna be doing a panel discussion with me at the DFA about what the trade can learn from retail. Right. And what retail has shown us, whether it be RH, R House, or et al, is that the experience to create the connection with a brand is terribly important. And that's why I think a lot of these companies are opening their own showrooms because they can give that experience. Those locations, those showrooms are not necessarily transactional spaces. The transactional is done, unfortunately, by email still, but by email, by digital, by fax still. But um, I think our designers want and need the experiential space. And I think that that's where we have to go. All these showrooms have to be about the experience and building a a brand connection. Then the rest, we have to support that relationship with really great tools to give them excellent service and communication. And that's it. I don't think it's much more different than retail in that way. You know, does someone walk into restoration hardware, say, I want that sofa and walk out, get hand their credit card and walk out? I don't know. But I would guess that their first wooed, they go eat a burger. You like their burgers, don't they? Yes, don't they're delicious burgers. Yeah, you do. RH. You mentioned yeah. that somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And then you're sort of digesting and thinking, you know, I'll <laughs> go home and look at it online. And then you, and then maybe purchase it online. All right. Or maybe you go back to the shop and, and then get some advice and, and go further. But 
it's about the experience in those in those showrooms. So design centers, whether it be a design center or a standalone showroom, um, design center makes sense because it regroups everything. I agree. I mean, and you know how I feel about the D and D building and and the management there drives me crazy. But I, <laughs> I they don't have burgers in the D and D. Well, mean, they have. They have I mean, right. They haven't reopened the <laughs> restaurant. The place is at sixes and sevens. But if you've got a showroom there, man, you better be taking every advantage you can and making an incredible experience there. Because as you said, that transaction isn't usually happening in the showroom. They're taking the sample, they're leaving, they're going back to their office. They better have a really strong memory of what an incredible experience they had at the Castell showroom, which I actually think is a great example of that. I think you guys do a great job, but we're getting back to business and man, these showrooms better look fantastic and and they yeah. right and they better be ready for prime time because to your point, these these retailers that are offering these incredible trade programs and are coming up with every kind of courtesy and, and tool they can imagine are coming for the trade in a, yeah. in a bigger way than even even before, which goes back to the discussion about coming out of this time. They're no less of a threat. They're more of a threat. RH is buying every freaking furniture maker they can get their hands on and and yep. huge operations in in LA and elsewhere just to be able to make more and more. So it's a it's a huge challenge. You brought up the DFA. Talk to me about so for those that don't know, Stefan is also the president of the Decorative Furnishings Association and this is a, a big organization of trade brands and you've also brought designers and others into the mix. Tell us what you're, what you're working on there. What's, what are some of the priorities that you're trying to address? So the DFA has been, I would say, one of the best experiences that I've had in my existence in the trade. I'm just a big cheerleader there. I have to say the DFA is the DFA because of the people who are working it. So I'm going to give all the credit of the successes that the DFA has had to them. But the DFA, I think, is an extremely important organization because it reunites like-minded and like-interested people in our trade to sort of find a way to move the needle in the right direction. I had been part of the DFA for many years, and I always felt that everyone was so protective and wouldn't speak and wouldn't tell anybody else what they were doing because they were afraid, because they were essentially a competitor. And so I thought, okay, we're actually, we have to combine forces against who our real competitor is. And our real competitor is those retail brands that are catering to the trade. So rather than us infighting and not doing anything, why don't we sort of look together at what we need to do to fend off those pressures and learn from what the retail is doing and adopt some of the good things Mm. and let the big retail find out the hard parts about what we do. And they'll figure it out. They and they have the means to 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 figure it out. So the DFA has been wonderful and we'll continue to have programming. We'll continue to have uh remote meetings, in-person meetings, and, and just build a connectivity and a following within our, our trade organization. We're taking a quick break from the show to hear more about High Point Market. When you're looking for fresh ideas, look to the home industry's center of innovation. 
At High Point Market, you'll see the latest and the best in the world of design. From revolutionary new materials and inspiring new styles, to proven techniques for growing and managing your business. Get ahead of the innovation curve at the place where the industry meets to reimagine home. This spring, market is April 2nd through the 6th. Get your pass today at highpointmarket.org. And now, back to the show. When you get together with some of your colleagues in the industry, perhaps even in a smaller group, are these same issues that we've been talking about, are, are they top of mind for other people that you that you talk to? Or, or what's your sense of, of what the consensus is that's, that's forming for people? So, you know, I, I understand and I'm not na- completely naive. I'm, I'm very hopeful, I'm very enthusiastic, and I'm very passionate, but I'm not naive. The thing that is true and it is amazing is that when you get into a small group and the, the, the armor comes off, everybody agrees. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Whether you're a right. huge company or a smaller company, everybody agrees that clients who sample that don't buy are a problem. Clients who reserve who don't buy are a problem. Clients who sample and buy, we like, <laughs> right? So little things like this. We all agree on the fundamentals. We all agree somewhat, and I can't talk about, I'm not wearing my DFA hat, by the right. way. I'm wearing my Stefan hat right. right now. We all agree that pricing should be more clear or transparent or whatever. We all agree, but no one does anything because everyone's afraid of, of taking that, that, that stance. I'll only say to the five big companies out there, and I'll mention them because I, I have utmost respect for them, but it is Kravit, Fabricut, Stark, Old World Weavers, um, Schumacher, Thibaut, lead the charge. Lead the charge, take a stance, and we will all follow. I, I'm I'm quite convinced of it. I mean, that's pretty bold of me well, to say. But, but so, what do you wish they would do? Take a stance and do what? I take a stance on on saying, you know what, we're going to start publishing our price and a net price, and that's and we don't sell to to you know. I mean, I guess it's layered because some of those companies do sell to companies that are reselling retail. Right. So I, I guess that's the, the issue of complexity. To try to address some of these issues, um, uh, whether it's price, which still has not been resolved, and what price, and 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 so again, I come back to the simplicity. Just it, it is one price, and that's it, and that's that price at which we sell. And again, how is the world transformed the day after that happens? So let's say Kerry Kravitz listening, right. yep. and he says, yep. "You know yep. what, Stefan's been saying this for years, and I'm going to throw him a bone, yeah. and I'm absolutely Kerry's not going to, and I'm going to, I'm going to." Put net Kerry pricing. is the nicest guy ever. Nicest ever. guy uh, in the business. And, but he won't tell me. He is me no more going to put net pricing on his website. Right. But, I know. I but know. let's say. Well, what, where do I see the benefit? Right. Where do I see What's going to happen? What's going to change? Yes. So first of all, I think that if you want to build, we're all about building a brand and, and, that, that, and, and getting brand recognition. How do you build a brand without having a price? I mean, it's like looking through a magazine for cars and you have no idea what a car's cost, right. right? Because there's no price or inquire for pricing, you automatically think it's unattainable. And I actually think that there are a lot of products that are attainable. So I think that would ease the minds of a lot of people who thought it was inaccessible to possibly entertain accessing it through an interior designer saying, oh, I had no idea or I'll try. 
I think it brings clarity and simplicity to the market between the relationship between the vendors and the designer. And then ultimately the designer will have hopefully an easier way to convey the value to their end user. I also think that everyone wants to know how much things cost. So if, if we all of a sudden started advertising, we said, well, that wallpaper or that fabric or that chair costs this. We sell to designers, to professionals only, but that's how much pretty much it would cost or starting at, you know, this kind of idea. If you don't have it, it, because there's so much customization and components that may change a price, it could say starting at, and it gives people a sense of position, even if people can't afford it. You know, everybody knows how much a Lamborghini or a Ferrari or a Bentley costs, whether they can afford it or not, they know, and they can either aspire to buying it one day or never but at least they can position it and they say, ooh, it's a Bentley, right? So, and in the same way, when you see these big retailers, they have positioned themselves. Everyone is saying RH is the luxury of that group. Well, how did they do that? Not because they have a pretty picture and say inquire for price, because there is a price and people know how much it costs. And people say, well, you know, RH is not that cheap either, you know? No, they're not but they've positioned themselves and they've not positioned themselves solely on images. They've positioned themselves on a price and then they work from there. So that's where I would like to level the field right. and get right. past this price story. Right. Well, and, and as you've talked about in the past, one of the great challenges for the fabric industry, for example, is it's a component business. Right. right. And so you can't show people the price of a sofa with Castell fabric on it because that's not the part of the component business that you're in. And that and that is one of the challenges with our industry as a whole is that people don't know how much things cost. How much do beautiful window treatments cost? And what's the high? What's the low? What's what's in between? And that's that's always been a challenge for our industry. And sadly, years ago, we decided to all try to go it on our own rather than come together and collectively try to solve that issue, right? And so we didn't put marketing budgets towards that. We didn't put our minds to how do we educate people about how much all of this really costs. And, and so it ends up being a shock so often to people, a surprise when... It shouldn't be. Well, but so right there, you say educating people and, and can't we look at it differently? And I'm really, I'm, I'm so open right now. I'm going to stick my <laughs> foot in my mouth. But so if we put a price and someone goes, oh my God, I can't believe it's so much. Then you have a conversation to say, well, let me explain to you why. But if you never put a price on it, no one's ever going to ask. They're going to say, well, how much is it? Well, that depends. And then all of a sudden you've lost the trust. You've lost like, oh, well, you're going to. So I think if there was a fixed position of something to start with, and then you can work yourself backwards to explain, I think there are a lot of people who say, well, actually, I don't care. I'll pay for it as long as I feel like I'm getting my value. Right. And then, mm-hmm. and a lot of very wealthy people just want it done and, and, and it's okay. Right. I think there are a lot of people who would be very proud to say that they spent a lot on something. Okay. And say, well, look, look what I've got. You know, uh, I have this brand. Um, and then there are a lot of people who start to say, oh, gee, I had no idea. Okay. I get it. And then some people say, I'll never be able to afford it. And that's okay. It's okay. 
but we have to start somewhere. And, and I'm, I think a lot of people are still wondering why we're still talking about this price thing, including myself. I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, the other part of this, though, and earlier you talked about how much of your price contains the costs around the service side of what you deliver. That, sure. That's also a conversation that you would like to have about different levels of service. And I know a lot of companies are looking at this reward program issue, or is there is there a different kind of incentive that we could create so that we perhaps aren't simply bringing a universal service level, but there might be tiers of service? The answer is yes. Like you heard me say, our frustrations are, you know, we all talk about sampling as a service and how costly it is. We all talk about reserves and holding inventory uh, as a costly proposition. I think we all agree that if a client buys we are happy to do that. We're happy to reserve the fabric if you proportionately and on a majority basis buy. And if you sample and you buy, we're happy to sample you. The truth is, and I don't know if anyone is going to admit it the way I will admit it, but when I look at how much we sell, oftentimes 90% of my sales to customers are one order, okay? One order a year for two yards. But they may have reserved a lot of fabric and never bought. And they may have sampled a lot of fabric and never bought. And they're, if you can follow me, making it more expensive for everybody else. Right. And that's where, to for the, all the designers out there, I'm saying, you're always looking for discounts, but you're making it more expensive every time you reserve and every time you sample and you don't buy, you're making it expensive for everyone. And we are in showrooms so that you have a local representation that you can go to and work with. And we're paying a handsome commission to those partners of ours. There's a lot of value to be there. And we absorb the credit card fees and you get the miles and you can pay those credit cards and, and control your cash flow using your credit cards. And you get to place back orders when we don't have something available at that moment for you. We may have the stock, but it's reserved by other clients and there's not enough for you and you want it then, we'll put into production 100 yards so you can buy four yards. Those are real privileges that have a real cost associated to it. And yes, I think that our industry has been really poor on creating loyalty programs. The airline industry, to give you a comparison, it, it's a loose comparison. But if you are a frequent flyer on Delta and you go to the American Airlines line and you say, I'm a frequent flyer with Delta, they say, get in the back of the line, I'm sorry. You know, the airline industry has been very good at providing services and perks to those who fly. You get to put your bag, extra bag you don't pay for, you get a preferred seat at no extra charge, you can cancel your ticket if you're a platinum level and no fees, tons for people who use that airline. And I think that one of the Achilles heels, and I get it, again, I'm not naive, I'm just putting it out there. We have built an industry around the, I hope you're gonna buy. 
So I will sample you at nauseum. I will reserve everything you want. I'll go visit you with gluten-free muffins 20 times a day just because maybe you'll buy and you don't. And we never penalize you for not. It's cra- it, it's it's pretty crazy. And so, and I understand we're all desperate to get that order, right? So we'll do it. But I think it eventually erodes. And if you look at it more should I say ecosystem? If we were to be able to have a more efficient cost of sale, we could put new product out. We could put new services out. We could, we could take clients on trips and dinners and do all that fun stuff. But we're spending all our money in sampling and holding inventory for reserves that don't become orders. Well, so, so this to me, Stefan, even more than publishing net pricing, this is where I'm surprised that the industry hasn't gotten together because you referenced the airline industry and whether they like to admit it publicly or not, they absolutely move in lockstep with one another. This one starts- Don't char- play golf together. We Maybe we should play golf <laughs> yes, together. Yes, exactly. Get, get out on the green. Harry, Timor, let's go yes. play golf. Yes, because this is a real challenge. The sampling, the reserves, the, the all of that, I can't believe. Now, Kravit, I gather, does have different levels or different discounts, perhaps, that they give to different tiers of designers. Right. I don't right. know. I, I, from what I understand, they have a whole elaborate scheme. I don't, I don't know how it works. But I'm surprised that this is where the industry hasn't come together to tackle this. You know, it's tricky. And it, it, it really depends. Look, first of all, Carrie once told me, Stefan, we're in a different business. And he's right. Kravit is not the same kind of business as Castell. I mean, we sell fabric to interior designers, but we're different. And the same, the big five that I've mentioned, right. they're different businesses than the 85% of the other ones, right. okay? Right. But it depends. It, you know, it depends on if you're in a multi-line showroom. How do you, you know, if you're in a showroom amongst all your competitors and you're hanging right next to them and you start trying to tighten up and, and your competitor is saying, eh, no, I'll let you have all my samples for free. The salespeople in those showrooms who have no pain, financial pain in the game, are going to go to the path of least resistance. So they're going to go to the line that's hanging right next to you and say, well, you know, Castell is really nice, but they're a pain in the neck. Let me show you this other company. They'll give you everything for free. So that's why we can't align, right? Yeah. When you yeah. have your own showroom, you can implement those rules, those those procedures more readily. And I really believe that's why a lot of these companies that can afford to are opening, not only opening their own showrooms, not only to build their brand, control the narrative, but also to keep things tight. Well, it always used to be that you had to have a certain amount of volume in a particular market right before you would think about, oh, yes, I really need to have sure. our own sure. showroom there. And and I, I wonder if people are still looking at that in the, in the same way today. And I ask that in part because I'm struck by how many companies have replaced showrooms with road reps and road programs in certain large markets in some cases and feel that that's enough for them. And I've always struggled with, what do you mean you're not going to have your own showroom or be in a showroom in a major market? You're, you're just going to have road reps, but, but maybe the world is, is very different today. What, what do you think? You know, 
all these things are very complex. And, and I think that there's some companies that may feel that the risk is lower. You don't have to sample a showroom. Remember, sampling a showroom is costly. And then if you ever want to move, it doesn't work because you can't often reuse that sampling that was hanging because the dimensions are different and you can't just transplant it. Okay. Road reps are obviously a lower risk. They also lower commission. They don't have the cost structure. They don't have the, the, the teams. Is the, the breadth of their influence as great as a showroom? No, it can't be. It, there's no way that one person can do what 15 or 20 people do out of a showroom. They generally don't take orders either. Showrooms will take the orders, right? And transfer the orders where road reps will just pass on and we manage the orders. Right. I mean, at least that's how we do it. Yeah. I think that if you look, and I think you just kind of have to look at the horizon of, of our, our industry, a lot of the showrooms or a lot of the companies have been acquired recently, okay? If you want to think about it, a multi-line showroom, but they're all controlled by the same company. Okay, so let's look at Kravit acquiring Dongya or Brunswick being acquired or whatever. It doesn't matter, mm. okay? They're just plugged in. The product is there, the, the look, the brand is there, but they're all being controlled by the same philosophy, the same system, the same point of sale system, as opposed to a multi-line who's not, right? Uh, they're all, each of these brands are doing things differently. It's difficult for the, those multi-line showrooms to manage different ways of working. They're less and less, if you will, brands. And, and then some of these sh brands go out and open their own showrooms if they can. I, again, it's going to be a hybrid. I think it's going to remain. I think there are going to be some sh multi-line showrooms that are going to be strong. I happen to be with a, a great group of partners that I have really appreciated. And I'm not saying that to save my skin here. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, bu they're building my business. And I know that they all fear the same thing. They all fear about building these companies up and then they leave. They all say the same thing. All right. And that's, I think that's, kind of a weird place to be for all of us, right? So that you have these multi-line showrooms that say, we're a great platform to build your small artisan brand and then we're gonna build you up and then I know you're gonna leave. So what's the incentive for them to really build you, right? They're gonna kind of keep you just at arm's length, just good enough so you're happy, so you don't move, but then, but then not great because otherwise you'll leave. Wow, that's tough, right? That's, that's uncomfortable, I think. And that's a shame because I don't think everybody's benefiting as well as they could, right? Well, I, it, 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 that's a very challenging model. And 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 I have certainly spoken, uh, Thomas Lavin, who's a partner of yours, and uh, Gary yeah. Gary Martin tells the, the, the gut-wrenching yeah. gut story of, right, of right, Counting right. and Tout pulling out after all these years. And what do you mean? A multi-million dollar business. And yeah, I'm sure it's incredibly difficult and emotional and financially and, and, and yet, that was what these multi-line showrooms were always about at the heart of them, right? right? Was they they right. were these incubators. They were going to help you to grow your business. Philip Jeffries, I mean, wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Lose, yeah. losing that amount of business at, at, at Holly Hunt. Now, they they rolled out a wall covering collection pretty, pretty quickly. And so I wouldn't worry about Holly Hunt, but wow, that's a huge loss of business and activity and 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 that had to that had to hurt emotionally or or otherwise and and it is challenging but 
that seems to be the nature of that of that business. And yeah, and I, yeah, it is. And I hope that multi lines will will continue to to thrive, as you as you were saying. I mean, I hope that the good ones will just get better and be a place that you'll want to go that has a different feel than just the corporately run showrooms of a single brand or a family of of brands all under one ownership, as you were saying. Yeah, yeah. I, I again, I think that the, the, you know there are some very good multi line showrooms, and they're extremely well run. And then there's some that aren't as well run. And you know, I think it's really about uh, what I would like to say is we are still very much in a relationship business, whether it be the brands with the showrooms or the showrooms with the customers or the brands with the customers. And that's great. And and fundamentally, I guess we're all in relationship businesses. But it should be more than just about the relationship. It should be more than just about, oh, I like them. It should be about, is working with them just so wonderful? Is the value in the product, in the sales, in the ease of transaction, are all those components there to make this more than just a relationship to make this a value proposition for the brands and for the showrooms and for the customers. And that I think will stand the test of any time and relationship. Relationships change, people change, moods change. I think it's a little a little dicey to just base things solely on relationships. I think you should base things on real fundamentals. And then if you like the people that you're working with, that's even better. Right. Then go enjoy right. the time together. Right. Afterward, yeah, but but fundamentally, they need to be on the same page and be moving in the same direction yeah. as as you with whether it's technology or whether it's how they think about managing the day to day. I'm curious as we as we wrap up the conversation, yeah. going back to this, what we're imagining coming out of this time. We've been in this incredible growth period for the home industry to the trade brands, as you were saying earlier, if you haven't been doing well these past couple of years, you better really look at your model because what are you doing? Right. What are you imagining the next couple of years look like? Do we have a, a, a meaningful slowdown in your mind? And, and what happens if we, if we do? I've always sort of been that one who says, hope for the best, plan for the worst. So I would just say, just be smart, just pay attention. Don't think that this is going to be forever and, and build and build something meaningful and, and, and look at, you know, the next year, three year, five year. And then where would you want to be in 10 years? Where, 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 where do you want your company to look like in 10 years? I know what I'm, I want my company to look like in 10 years. And how do you get there? And you may never get there, but start working towards that. And while business is good, Use those resources, put them in the coffers so that you can get there rather than just be like, okay, this has been great. Now I can go on vacation because it's been a long two and a half years of exhaustion. Keep fighting, keep going, keep moving. Do you know what you want your business to look like in 10 years? Oh, yes, Dennis, I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want, uh, I want the world. <laughs> Carrie, here I come. No. <laughs> well, I do. I, I, I think, again, it's very much of what I've said. I won't repeat myself. It's, it, it's going to be a hybrid model. I, right. I would like to reach more customers. I would like more customers to be buying fabric. More customers meaning interior designers. I want to only sell to interior designers. I want more interior designers to know what I'm my company's about, what my product's about, that what my service is about, what my what I can give them. I want to give them a great experience. 
that's what I want. And I just, I really want to build a, a great company and, and an honest one and a fair one. And, and I do want to get to the next level. Castell has gone through lots of iterations, uh, little ones, and we're little. And I consider myself a featherweight, but I want to go to a middleweight. Um, okay. and, and, I, and I want to share what I've learned with other companies who would like to be on board with me. And I'm happy to share my, my tools and my learning. And if they want to collaborate or, or work with me, I can only put out, and I don't, I want to stay in our channel as far as product goes. Mm. I know what we're good at and I know what we like. I don't want to start offering leopard prints to people, right? That's Scalamandre. Okay. Right, right. <laughs> zebras. I don't want to put zebras in my collection, right? They've got that. And Laura, my Laura, who's designing it, won't put zebras, but but I think we've got a platform and and I've lived through quite a bit and I kind of have to say proudly, I've stood the test of time and I'm still here and I really believe that I will stand the test of time and I want to build it a little bigger. Okay. Wow. Well, we, we'll, we'll look for what that means coming, coming next. Uh, thank you again, Stefan, for making the time to talk with us. Well, Dennis, you, you, you're so wonderful and great. And thank you for asking all the right questions <laughs> and, and channeling me the best you can. It's hard. It's hard. It's, you know, it's, I know uh, where you want to go. Uh, I'm like a free radical. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was great. I mean, honestly, I love opinionated guests and I knew I could count on you for that. So, well, thank you, Dennis. Thank, and thank you. you to everyone at BOH. Yes. All right. A pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and Caroline Burke and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.